We are in our series, summer series, uh, second part of it, in, uh, titled Finding Jesus in the Book of Judges. And so as we work through these, we're going to look at different judges and we're going to see kind of how they bring a representation of Jesus to, to our landscape. One of the things that I've noticed over my years of being a pastor um, is that there are a bunch of church people who are looking for areas to disqualify themselves from being of service to God in the church. So they'll, they'll say something like, I don't know the Bible well enough. Uh, I, I, I can't speak in public. I can't, I can't, I just, when I get in front of people, I get all tongue tangled and I just can't speak in public. Um, they'll, they'll talk about maybe um, they're bashful or they're shy. They'll say that, that they don't know doctrine or they don't know theology. And so what they do is they continue to make these excuses of their lack of ability to, to serve God. There, there are other things that are real life kind of things, like someone who maybe suffers from dyslexia, for, for instance. And someone who suffers from dyslexia, they have a hard time reading a book and comprehending what they're reading and taking notes on it. Not only that, but they can turn letters backwards. And so they'll see, instead of seeing a B, they see a D. They can change words. Like instead of seeing the word saw, they'll read it was. And that's what dyslexia does to somebody who suffers from that. And they could say, because of my learning disability, I can't really be of service to God. Therefore, I just need to sit in the pews and just soak it in and never give anything out. Well, you know, it, it's really interesting to me that those kinds of people, even though they suffer from these, these issues and they feel like they're disqualified for, for doing something from, for God, they actually become some of the greatest tools God ever uses to influence great numbers of people. Matter of fact, I think the Apostle Paul had a great understanding of how people would try to disqualify themselves. Because here's what he said in 1 Corinthians. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So don't let whatever it is you think in your own mind disqualifies you from serving God be your reason for not serving God. God uses all kinds of people. And the great thing is, is that God isn't looking for the smartest or the best looking or the most talented or the greatest orators. He's not looking for someone who's at the, the cream of the crop, at the top of the class. He's not looking for those kind of people. What He is looking for is He's looking for someone who has a heart that is willing to say, my life is yours, God. 
Use it however you want. Your will be done, not mine. And then when God calls, they answer the call. They step into whatever God asks them to do, and they do it with enthusiasm, joy, knowing that it's not dependent on them for success, but God brings the success. And that brings us to the judge that we're studying this morning. And his name is Ehud. Now, Ehud's not the guy that you would pick to do something great. He's not the guy, the first guy you're going to pick to be on your dodgeball team. He's not the guy you want for ultimate frisbee. He's not the guy that you're going like, hey, you know what? I'm looking at this guy, and I think that he is going to be an extraordinary leader someday. He just doesn't strike you that way. Matter of fact, when you look at Ehud and you think about him and you study him, and and, and if you were to meet him face to face, you would go, there's something odd about this guy. There's something different about Ehud. I can't quite put my finger on it, but there is something different about this guy. And, And I just don't quite get it. Now listen, Ehud may be a name you've never heard, heard before as you've read the Bible. It may be a name that you've, you're not familiar with, and so you really don't know much about him. So let me give you a little, little bit of a background on him so when we start off, you get a better understanding of who this warrior savior is before we actually get into what he did. We find his story in Judges chapter 3. And at the beginning part of verse 15, it says this, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Not an impressive resume. Don't know a lot about this guy. Doesn't give us a lot of information about him. Here's what we do know, is that he is left-handed. Now, I want you to understand that is highly important as to what is going to take place throughout the story, knowing that he's left-handed. We don't really think that much about somebody being left-handed. Let me ask this. How many people here this morning, put your hand up if you're left-handed. Put your left hand up. All right, take a look around. Yeah, you good old lefties. Do you feel awkward or weird in a right-handed world? Yeah, well, I don't think that that, you might want a second opinion on that. You, I, I just don't know if you're in your right mind. I'm just not, I'm not believing that. Anyway, so Ehud, he's this left-handed guy. It kind of seems like a small uh, detail, but it's a big point for the entire story. Because being left-handed in ancient days really was they looked at it as being restrictive. And, and kind of what it said, if, if you were left-handed, the immediate thought that came to their mind was, there's something wrong with your right hand. It's, it's, it, you, maybe you're crippled. Now remember, he's a Benjamite. And here's what we know about Benjamites, is that almost all of the men who were in that tribe They were ambidextrous. In other words, they could use either hand equally as well. They were trained from little boys, little kids, to use both their right hand and their left hand. So when they were being trained as young warriors or young hunters, they were taught 
how to shoot a bow both with their, their right hand and with their left hand. They could wield a sword with either their left or their right. They, could, they were ambidextrous, and that was one of the big points about the men who came from that tribe, that they were ambidextrous. But the Bible doesn't tell us that our, our man, Ehud, was ambidextrous. There are some people who thought maybe he was handicapped, that he was crippled in his right hand. Therefore, it became natural for him to use his left hand, and that's why he was left-handed, and that's what they said. My theory, and the one I'm going to stick with, is because it's kind of more clear that way, is that Ehud was a left-handed, he was left-handed. There's nothing more, and there's nothing less to it. He was just like a few of you in this room. He was born with the dominant left hand. And that's okay. And that's what he did. But the, um, the, the thought about it is, is that he is coming from a position that is not normal. It's actually quite odd in his time. Now, the funny thing is, is that when you come from the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin means son of my right hand. Oh, and yet we have a left-handed man. God does some really funny things in our lives, and if you pay attention, you start to pick up some of these things. But let me continue on, because historically, left-handedness has been seen as an oddity, almost a disability. Back in the old days, people were encouraged to correct their left-handed children. Being left-handed was even seen by some as being a sign of evil. Being left-handed certainly has its its disadvantages at times. Matter of fact, I remember growing up as, um, in our home, my brother Dwight, who's just older than I am, we had to sit by each other at the dinner table. He's left-handed, I'm right-handed. So elbows would smash. And it wasn't pleasant because he was much larger than I was. So he would take advantage of it with his left hand and eat twice as much food. That's why... I'm making up for it nowadays, as you can tell. So we have people all over who are dealing with this thing called being left-handed. And um, it, it was considered very unnatural in the ancient times. Ehud could have been devastated by this problem. He could have thought and said or wandered through life saying, why am I left-handed in a world of right-handers? Why am I different? Many of us are defeated by the things in our lives which may be more or less significant than being left-handed. But if we do not accept our limitations, they can keep us from being usable. When we accept ourselves with our weaknesses and limitations, guess what? God can use that person. And so, here's what we have going on with Ehud. Even with his own physical limitations, he carries out the work of God. The author shows us that um, God takes his leaders, those who use their talents and circumstances that God has given them, to do his work in spite of anything else that's going on around them. And so the big question is, why did God have to raise up a judge anyway, and particularly one with limitations of being left-handed? Why, why did God do that? 
Well, let me just kind of take you back a few verses and start with verse 12. And it says this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. There is a, a, something that's going on here. You could almost say, if you were reading through the book of Judges, you would say to yourself, uh-oh, here we go again. Israel has decided that they're going to walk away from God and they're going to, they're going to do their own thing and they, they get easily distracted from the work of God when they find that they are not being focused on the reality of who God is. When, when the Israelites lost their focus on God, they focused on the things around them in their culture of their day, and whenever they did that, they ended up doing things that were evil in the sight of God. Now, it, it's, it's unbelievable what takes place in this country because we hear from their hearts there's this affection that they have for another God. And because God said you will have no other God before you, because, and, and if you do, there are going to be consequences of that. Israel, after their last judge died, who was Othniel, when he passed away after bringing peace to the land for 40 years, in other words, Israel walked with God for 40 years and did what was righteous and holy in the sight of God, and then Othniel, the judge, died, and immediately Israel turns around and forgets what God did, forgets who God is, and they go back, and they go back to the, the pig trough, as it were, and they start to feed on the things that are detestable to the, uh, our holy God. And here we have these people who have turned their back on God. They did things that were evil in the sight of God. And the way the author puts it, he says, again. So this isn't the first time. And it sounds like it's a reoccurring issue that they have. And so let me talk about the issue that brought Israel to the place of God's discipline. Because what's happening is, because there's this cry for, for God to rescue them. Now, I want you to understand the, something about the cry, because it was mentioned in the earlier verse. Um, verse chapter 15, it said, And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, he raised up a deliverer. The cry that they gave wasn't a cry of, God, forgive us for turning our backs on you. Forgive us for following in the paths of wickedness and evil. It was, God, help us because we're under the thumb of a, a tyrant a king who's ruling with an iron fist and making our lives miserable. They weren't so concerned about their sin. They were more concerned about the way that their life was playing out before them that they just had all this this stuff going on that was making them feel miserable, and yet they never turned and said, forgive us, we repent. They turned and said, help us, because our lives are miserable. And so God says, all right, I'm going to help you. I'm going to raise up this deliverer, 
I'm going to raise up the most unlikely guy among you to deliver you. And so he brings in this, this young guy, Ehud. Now here's what, why they got to where they're at, the evil and the wickedness that they did. Here's how they got to where they're at. The nation of Israel, when they took over the promised land, God gave some very specific instructions. When God gives specific instructions, he expects his people to obey them with detail. It's not just kind of if you think about it. It's not just kind of a, you know, you know it, it, this might be a good idea. It is more of a command. This is what you have to do. And so we pay attention to that. But apparently... Israel didn't do that because what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to drive out the Canaanites out of the country. There were other people that God said, I want you to annihilate the entire nation of people. I want you to kill every man, woman, child, baby, goat, camel, cow, dog, cat, and hamster. I want them all dead. I want them annihilated. And our thought process in that is we go like, how can God be a God of love when he wants to absolutely decimate and annihilate an entire nation? And I think Israel probably had some of those same thoughts because they didn't do what God commanded them to do when clearing out the land to to take possession of it and to make it their home. They left some junk in the basement that should have never been there. And then, consequently, what happens is that they step into these things. After our our boy Othniel passes away, then they step back and they're looking at the Canaanites and they're watching these gods that the Canaanites worship and they're going, that looks a whole lot more like fun worshiping Baal and the other gods that are there and the Asheroth. Those look like fun gods to worship instead of our gods boring God that requires us to give blood sacrifices. Let's let's engage in this worship of these idols made by hands. And so they did. And we kind of think like, well, you know, what's the big deal? I mean, after all, we in the United States, we're the enlightened ones, and we have freedom of religion. You can worship whomever, wherever, whatever you want to worship. I mean, if you want to stand up in the morning and go into your bathroom and light some candles in front of the mirror and worship yourself, everybody's going to go like, no, that's really cool, man. You just go ahead and do that because you've got the freedom and the right to worship whatever you want to worship. God doesn't really give two rat's tails about your rights of worship. What God wants is he wants to have a relationship with you. And idols will definitely interfere with that because those idols, they will they'll bring you into bondage. They will enslave you into bad habits and bad things going on. And that's exactly what the problem was with Israel because they started to worship Baal and Asheroth. And this worship of these gods, if you don't know anything about them, this is why God wanted them, these nations that worship these gods, annihilated. Because if you worship Baal, if you're going to build a new house or you're going to do an addition on your house, or you're going to build a shop downtown 
where you're going to sell your goods, whatever building project you're doing, when you start the construction of that, you are to take your oldest child that's still like, you know, under a certain age, a baby, let's say, and you're supposed to take it to the temple of Baal, and you're to offer it, and they, they have this huge bronze statue that they light this fire under, and the arms of this bronze statue are close enough together to where they heat that, that statue's arms up so that they're flaming hot red. And then they take that little baby, and they're, they're slanted back towards this idol. And they take that little baby, and as a sacrifice, they lay that baby on the hands, and it rolls back into this idol, and it's burned to death. And then the families to take the bones of that baby and put them in the jar, and whatever construction they have going on, they take that jar and they stick it in the wall of the construction of the house or the building or whatever they're doing. And, and if the mother shows any remorse for her child being sacrificed and dying this horrific death, the, the sacrifice is nullified and you start all, all over and you offer up another child. Child sacrifice. Whenever they needed something, whatever they wanted, whatever was, was in hip of those days, the, the priests of Baal would require child sacrifices. Now, okay, so that's, that's really bad. But what about um, Asheroth? Well, if you were to uh, worship Asheroth, you are to take your oldest child, either a boy or a girl, or maybe both, and you take them down to the, the temple... And you bring them and you give them to the temple priest and you say, here is my sacrifice for my family. We're giving you our children to serve in the temple as temple prostitutes. And we're not talking about 14, 15-year-old girls. We're talking about five, six-year-old little girls, four and five-year-old little boys. And those children were sexually abused to the point where most of them died before they were even seven. And we wonder why God says annihilate, destroy, kill every fiber of that wicked nation. And this is exactly what Israel is turning to and starting to worship as their God. Baal and Asheroth. And these are their new gods and they're sacrificing their children to these gods. And they're entering into this wickedness. So when you see this where it says, and the people again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, you know it's really evil. Now, aren't you glad we're nothing like them? That we've never sacrificed up a child in the name of freedom? I don't know how we think that we're a godly nation. I don't know, and this is a little rabbit trail, just so you know. I don't understand where we come off and we say, yeah, you can kill those little babies in the womb and it's just fine. Because we are no better. You might as well have that baby go full term, bring it to, to, to life, and then take it and offer it on the sacrifice to Baal. But I will tell you, there would be an outcry, an outrageous outcry of the murder of innocent little children 
But it's okay if they're still in the womb. And I pity our nation because we are not a godly nation. And God will bring judgment to bring us back, not to destroy us, but to bring us back to the point where we recognize who God is and what He wants. So here's what we've got going on. We've got this, this evil wickedness going on. And, and they're doing it again. And, and so we've, we, we've got to take care of the issues. And that's why God's bringing Israel into subjection of another nation because He wants to bring divine discipline to them so they come back to that righteous relationship with Him. That's what God really wants from them. But there's this cycle of evil practice that seems to be woven into the fabric of, of, of Israel. They think that they're going to thrive under this new God, but what they don't understand is that you have to have godly leadership in order for a nation to thrive spiritually. Now, it says that they took that uh, King Eglon set up his headquarters at the city of Palms. You know that city. That city's called Jericho. And that's the one when Joshua led Israel into the promised land, God says, I want you to take Jericho. I want you to march around the walls of that thing seven, you know, once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, seven times go around. On the seventh time, blast your horns, and I'm going to make the thing fall in on itself. Now, here's the, here's the good news in all of this. God is showing mercy to the people and the inhabitants of Jericho because he's saying, we're going to destroy you. So we're going to give you six days to evacuate the city. You can go and leave the country. Pack up all your stuff, grab your little kids, grab grandma and grandpa, get in the car, drive out of town, drive out of the country, go make your inhabitation somewhere else, or else you're going to die. In Jericho, they were proud, arrogant. They had walls as thick as this room. Who's going to knock that down? I mean, these guys, all they have is swords and spears. How are they? They don't have catapults. They can't besiege the country or the, the city and take over. And so God says, I'm going to destroy them, and he did. And, and the, the problem is, is that after Jericho was destroyed and the inhabitants were killed, there were still relatives left in the country, in the land. They're supposed to be driven out of the country. But what did they do? They rebuilt Jericho. The, Israel, the Israelites let them rebuild this city and reestablish their wicked worship in the country of Israel. And so that's where they go to, the city of Palms. Hey, let's go to, it's like Vegas, right? Let's, get, let's do a little vacation thing, go down to the city of Palms for a little vacation. We can do a little worship of Baal. We can do a little other worship there of the other gods. It'll be great, you know, spend a little money, have a good time away, and then we'll come back and maybe straighten up. And God's going like, no, you guys are supposed to absolutely destroy this whole thing. And so now they are under the oppression of Eglon, the king. Uh, let's pick up this on verse 15b. It says, The people of Israel sent a tribute to him, to by him, by um, Ehud, to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit length, and he bound it on his right thigh 
under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon, get this, was a very fat man. When the Bible says somebody's very fat, guess what? They're obese. They have a TV show about this guy. It's called My 600-Pound Life. And, and so he's a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute in. Now, here's what I want you to pick up out of this little part. Because what Ehud does is he makes a sword for himself. It's a double-edged sword. That's unusual. Okay? Usually they're just, they're, they, they made swords for hacking. But this one was meant for stabbing. And so I have my little sword that I strap on my thigh. It is not a double-edged sword. And it's probably really good for hacking. And it is actually a little bit sharp. And so I really wouldn't want to play with it too much. And that's a very pointy point right there on the end. I've got to be careful because I could hurt myself. But guess what? This is a cubit, 18 inches right here. This is what the sword looked like, or length of it. It didn't look like it was double, double-sided. Um, you're wondering where I got this? This comes from Indonesia. John brought it back for me. It's actually made out of a leaf spring off of a car. Uh, the guy that made this is a believer. He follows Jesus. John knows him, and John had him make a bunch of He makes these for tourists. Now, they have these exactly like this in Indonesia, and they use them for idol worship. They use them to chop up animals. John says there have even been used for human sacrifice in Indonesia. But this is it right here. So it's on his right thigh down here somewhere like this. Okay? And he's got his big cloak over it. And now he's becoming, guess who? Guess, guess who we made a, a hero just like this guy? You know what his name is? Bond, 007, license to kill, James Bond. That's what you call Ehud, James Bond, because he's got this fancy little gadget that Q made for him. Actually, he was Q himself. And he strapped it to his thigh, and he delivers now the um, tribute to the king. The tribute to the king primarily was like a lot of grain, like wheat, barley, all the grains, uh, a lot of fruit, vegetables, um, wine, all this produce, cattle, sheep, goats, a whole thing. It brought it to him and really it, it put Israel kind of in a deficit mode because now they're giving away the stuff that they're supposed to live on. And by giving it to them, they're saying, we subject ourselves to your rule and authority over our lives. And the reason why uh, King, you know, Eglon is so fat is because that's all he does is he just eats this stuff and he does it all the time. If I were to give you a picture of who he is like in today's world, it would be uh, Fat Kim from North Korea, Kim Jong-un. You know, the Chinese call him Fat Kim. And the fact is, is that he is, he is a very large man and the people, the people who serve in his army are starving to death while he gorges himself on food. That's the picture I want you to get of this king, this fat king, because that's what he's doing to Israel and to everybody else. And so he's got this thing going on. And it's, it, so when, 
when he delivers the tribute, he sends all the people who came with him. They all go back and they take the tribute and they leave. And and Ehud goes back to meet with Eglon. But when he got there, remember, he's got guards and uh, all kinds of people who attend to the king. And so you don't just walk in, especially a foreigner, you don't just walk into the king's presence. They're going to search you, make sure you're not carrying a weapon. But because everybody was right-handed and the, the place you would put your, your weapon if you were carrying one would be on your left thigh so that when you reached with your right hand, you could pull it out quickly and there it is, it's ready to go. And so they just checked his right side. They didn't check him completely. And they probably looked at him and he was so unassuming and he probably wasn't a really big guy. He wasn't imposing in any way. They probably go like, this guy is no threat to anybody. He probably couldn't fight his way out of a wet paper bag. And so they really didn't check him over to see if he had any weapons on him. And so he went in and he was already now into the king's chamber. And he was going to have this thing going on. Um, So I want you to read with me verses 19 through 23. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all of his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And he said, I have a message from God for you. And, and the king rose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand. And he took the sword from his right thigh. And he thrust it into the belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed around the blade, for it did not pull out the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out, and Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him. This guy was good. He's doing what God called him to do. I have a secret message for you, O king. The king's like, oh, I don't want anybody else to hear this. This is for my ears only. This guy's going to bring a message from the God of Israel. So everybody out. And he waits till everybody's gone. The doors are closed. And he's sitting there by himself. And now he says, Ehud says to the king, I've got not just a secret message. I've got a divine message from God. And then he delivers the message. You know what the message was? Die, you fat pig. I'm just, that's my interpretation. I think that's what it says in the original Hebrew. Now look, we often think that the message from God has always got to be a positive message of well-being or hope, but there are many times that the message of God is judgment and death because this is a wicked man who is doing wicked things in the country that God said no more wickedness should be there. So he he stretches out his left hand, he took the sword, and he thrust it into the belly, and the blade went in, I mean the handle went in, and the fat, you couldn't retrieve it, you couldn't find it. But it does say that the blade, the tip of the blade came out of the king's back. So now you got dead fat king laying on the floor, 
his bowels, he pooped himself. So that's what it means, you know, dung. It came out. Do you know what that smells like? It's horrible. And so, you know, Ehud says, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out of here. And so he, he starts to, to make his way out. Here, verses 24 and 25. It says, when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of his cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. So this is going to be kind of one of those things where these guys are making bathroom jokes about a dead king. Because that's where he was. He has this cool, you know, porch setting where he's, he, he just hangs out. He's cooled and hanging out and doing all the king stuff, eating food and drinking wine and just doing that. And all of a sudden, off in the little corner, he has a bathroom. And that's where he goes because they say he went to relieve himself. And so basically what they're thinking is, here's the little jokes that are going on. They're going like, you know, our big fat king. He got up off his big throne and went to his little throne. <laughs> ah, you know, they're telling all these little naughty bathroom jokes about the king because he's in the inner chamber and they're just talking away and all of a sudden, 10 minutes becomes 15 minutes, 15 minutes becomes 20. Now, you know what they're also thinking? They're going like, okay, he took some reading material with him. Outdoor life, Sports Illustrated, something, because that's what men do. You know, if you're going to be in there for 15 minutes, Take a book. If you're going to be in there for an hour, take a series of books. And, you know, hunker down because that's, that's actually the library in your home. And that's what they were doing. They were making fun of the king because he's in there. And then all of a sudden, guess what they smell? The poo. It's, it's wretched smell because it came out of him. And it's, it's disgusting. And they're going like, Man, he's got irritable bowel syndrome. This is horrible. He needs like a deal. We got to get a fan in that room. Something. And they're start. But then it becomes really long and it becomes embarrassing. Now they're going like, man, he's got some serious problems. And they're calling his name and they're calling him out and nothing happens, nothing happens. And so this long period of time elapses and they go in and they find their Lord dead on the floor. Well, the great thing is, is that in all of this, what it did is it gave Ehud the chance to escape. And so he got out of there and he did it. And here's how our story concludes. Ehud escaped while they delayed and he passed beyond the idols, escaped to Syria, Syria. I'm dyslexic, I can't read that word. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped, so the Moabites, the Moabites, so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the hand had rest for 80 years. Ehud leads his people into the annihilation of 
10,000 of God's enemies. And consequently, God grants Israel peace for 80 years. And, and this is what happens when you make yourself available to God. God takes this, takes this one moment in history, this little blip of a sword being thrust into a king. It changed everything. At that moment, everything changed. They went from being slaves and being under the, the uh, oppression of this wicked king. Now they were free and they were to, uh, able to live and worship God as God called them to do it because there was one moment where one man said yes to God and was obedient and followed through on what God told him to do. And it affected the lives of millions of people for 80 years. But here's the thing about Ehud. If he would have been brought before the leadership of Israel and said, here is your warrior, savior, deliverer, the one that your God has chosen to deliver you from the hand of Eglon, the king, the Moabites, nobody would have voted him in for the position of leader. Nobody would have followed him because he was such an unlikely, unrealistic guy to deliver anything for anybody. They would have passed him over. But guess what? Moses, he was slow of speech, and God used him in a mighty way. Uh, Paul, he was a small man. His stature was, was petite, and yet God used him to plant churches all over the world. And so what happens is, is that when these men of faith give themselves over to God, God provides the victory. Ehud turned a disability into a possibility because he depended upon the Lord. Ehud was an unlikely deliverer of God's people. He foreshadows Jesus Christ, another unlikely deliverer of God's people. With Jesus' humble background, no one would have ever expected him to do anything. Matter of fact, the question was, can anything good come out of Galilee? They're going like, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Messiah? You've got to be kidding. Not that guy. He's not worth anything. Do you know where he came from? He came from, from Mary and Joseph. Do you know Mary and Joseph? Mary got pregnant out of wedlock, and they had this baby in a, in a manger. Our king of Israel, he's going to be born in a palace. He's going to be of noble birth. He's going to be somebody special. You will know him because you will be drawn to him. But That's not what Isaiah said. Isaiah said this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we would desire, should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom mid men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That was the Messiah. That was the Savior of the world. That was the King of the Jews. That was the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel. That is him. That's the way he describes him. Guess who he sounds like? Ehud. But God 
chose him and used him in a mighty way. We, we see Jesus differently than what they saw Jesus. Nobody would have followed Jesus. They didn't start following Jesus because he was handsome, he was good-looking, he was the smartest of the smart, even though he was the smartest, he was very humble. They followed him because he had the embodiment and the essence of God himself in everything he did. And you know what the, the weapon that God used with Jesus, you know what his weapon was? It was the cross. And you know what the cross did? It defeated the devil. At the resurrection, it was all done. Everything was taken care of. There was a woman who would walk to work every day, and she would pass the pet store. And the pet store recently got a parrot. And the parrot would sit right at the front door in its little cage with the door open. And as the woman walked by one day, the parrot said, Hey, lady, you're ugly. And the lady was rightfully so. She was uh, put off by this a little bit. But she just thought, you know what? I'm just going to let it go. It's just a stupid little bird. So she blew it off. The next day, the same thing happened again. And she got a little angrier, and, but she still went on her way. The third day, she walked by, and the parrot did the same exact thing. This time, she'd had enough of the parrot, and so she walked into the store owner, and she says, you've got a very rude parrot here, and you need to do something about it because every day it tells me I'm ugly. Owner said, I will take care of it. Not a problem. So the next day, she's walking to work. The parrot's sitting there in his cage, and she walks by, and the parrot goes, hey, lady. And the lady turned around, looked at him, and said, what? And the parrot said, you know. Now, you see, what I want to tell you is the enemy of our soul has been telling you for a long time that you're not able, that you're not qualified, that you're not smart enough, that you're not good enough, that you don't, you don't have what it takes. You have nothing to, to, to serve God with. He has been telling you that for a very long time, and you have finally gotten sick and tired of it, and you have said to the devil, shut up and get out of my life. And yet, when you walk by the door, he goes, hey, and you go, what? And he says, you know. And you need to say, I know this. I'm a child of the king. He has chosen me. He has called me. He has equipped me. He has given me everything that I have. Do I have, do I have dysfunctions in my life? You bet I do. Do I have qualities that aren't great? You know I do. But guess what? I have a God that loves me so much, he's going to take those qualities of my life and he's going to flip them around and he's going to use them to glorify his name because that's what a great God does. He uses the weakness of our lives to glorify his name. So I say to you, just like Paul said in the book of Romans, if I can get there, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And what shall we say to these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? Our Father, we are so thankful this morning that you have given to us the image of Ehud, a man who was not great in his accomplishments. He wasn't the best of the best. He wasn't the greatest. He was just an ordinary God guy that you took and did all extraordinary things with because you empowered him and you gave him the strength and the abilities to do what he could not do in his own flesh. And I pray this morning that we would pick up the story of Ehud into our own lives. And we would see that you're calling each of us, regardless of whatever disability we have, whatever we think that disqualifies us from service, you're saying, bring it all to me because I can use every ounce of it for my glory. God, give us the courage to say yes to what you want to do in us and through us because when we say yes, great things will happen. We thank you that you'll work even with us, even in our disabilities. We pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.